So glad we're able to be together this morning and worship and hear the word read and hear the word preached and sing the word together. What a blessing it is to be together this morning. You know, as much as we're all tempted to complain about the weather and things, uh, most of us probably are doing some kind of Bible reading plan, or perhaps you are. And um, In Genesis 8, God makes his covenant with Noah, right? And after the flood and after things are come back, and God says, this is my covenant to you in verse 22 of Genesis 8, that for the rest of the time the universe exists, there will be summer and winter, heat and cold. And so when we see this insane temperature outside, it is a reminder of God's covenant faithfulness. He's promised this. And the fact that it's here means that he is still keeping his promise. Isn't that great? I just thought that was a good reminder and try to hopefully bring some cheer to this cold. <laughs> Last week, uh, before we get started for the morning, we're going to look at the, the rest of chapter 2 of Ephesians this morning, verses 17 to 22. But before we do, I just I remembered something that I probably should have said last week. Um, when we talk about, and specifically in chapter 2 of Ephesians, it talks about the reconciliation that we experience with God. You remember that? It's primarily being reconciled to God. And then Paul applies it to ethnic or racial reconciliation using the model of the Jewish people and the Gentile people. You remember that from last week? If you weren't here, it's on the website. You can listen there. But another thing I want to point out is that not only does this reconciliation apply to ethnic situations, but I think to all situations. I sit across the table from enough of you to know that there is relational hurt There's separation in families. There's things that need to be brought together in our lives. And I think this passage not only says it's possible now for people of this ethnic group and people of this ethnic group to get together, but this reconciliation is possible for every area of our lives. If you have an estranged relationship with a coworker, with a family member, a son or a daughter, whatever it is, God is able to reconcile those relationships. That's that's what we see. So while it is specifically applied to one situation, I want to make sure that we realize this is available for us in Christ and because of what Jesus did. Amen. That's the benediction from last week. Let's move on now in our text. So I'm going to invite you to open to Ephesians chapter 2. If you have not done that yet, and we're going to read 17 through 22, 11 was last week. It was a pretty exciting week for me because the marker ribbon in my Bible has been on the same page since September 13th, and I turned it this week. It's now on a new page, so that's really exciting. This is my preaching Bible, so you guys don't care. Anyways, it's, it's really good. Let's read the word together. We'll pray, and we'll work through our text this morning. So Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, I'm so thankful for your word, and I'm thankful for the way it instructs us, the way it instructs me. And Father, today now, as we look at this last part of Ephesians 2, and we see that you have reconciled us to yourself, and not only have you brought us near by the blood of Jesus, but you have brought us into something. You've brought us into relationship and into your family and into your house, into your home. And so, Lord, as we look at this today, I pray that the significance of what has happened would be felt. Lord, I pray for my own heart and my own mind now as I preach the word. Would you speak through me and take away any distracting things or unnecessary things, God? I I don't want to be a hindrance to the clarity of your word. I pray for these brothers and sisters who are here. Pray that their ears and their minds and their hearts would be open. That they would come to understand what you have done for us in Christ. And we would live lives according to that. Father, thank you for all of the different ways that you watch over us. You protect us. Things we don't even think about. We, We got in our vehicles and drove here this morning and you preserved us there. You've kept us from so much harm, I'm, I'm convinced of that, and we're thankful. Be with us now as we look to your word, Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Paul <clears throat> is continuing in this section now in Ephesians 2, and he's still speaking to um, Gentiles specifically. Okay, we're in that section, we saw that, he opens the section in verse 11 by saying, you Gentiles, it's pretty clear, and now here he's keeping up with that theme, you can see that in the first verse when he says, um, you Gentiles who were far off, and those, referring to the Jews who were near, we, we covered that last week with the near and the far kind of a thing. So last week we saw that Jesus is our peace, remember that, he has fulfilled the law of commandments. And that he has made one new man in place of the two. Paul's using this illustration of Jew and Gentile to help us understand this. And in so doing, he has made peace. And hopefully, as we're going through this, you're taking time occasionally to read through the whole book of Ephesians. It takes about 18 minutes for average reader to get through. It's not that bad. And as you read through the book, you see this theme of unity the theme of peace that comes over and over through the book. I think this is something that Paul really wants these churches to know, and by extension, us as well. Especially when we consider some of the context, that these were people from all different walks of life, different religious backgrounds, or no religious background, coming together, and so Paul emphasizes this theme of unity. In chapter 4, he says that we are to maintain the unity of the bond of peace. Then he goes on to describe that by saying there is one Lord, not many lords. One faith, not many faiths, right? He's getting at this unity peace, one baptism, one God and Father of all. So all of this unity starts here. Actually, it started in chapter 1 by us being adopted into the family of God. That's where the unity started. But in chapter 2, we see that a little more specifically. So, let's start in verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. 
Paul says that Jesus came, that's what the he is, if we keep it in context, verse 17, he came and preached, that's Jesus. So what does it mean that Jesus came and preached peace? Some have suggested that this is referring to the earthly ministry of Jesus, that he came, he preached the gospel, we see that by reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, And while that's certainly true, I don't think that's only what Paul has in mind here. For one reason, we know that Jesus' ministry was primarily to the Jewish people, right? He, he said that repeatedly. I didn't come for them. I came for the household of Israel. So by Paul saying he came and preached peace to Jew and Gentile, I think we have to look at more than just Jesus' earthly ministry. What I think this is after looking at this is that it's referring to the ministry both of Jesus while he was here, right? I'm not, I'm not taking that away or discounting that. But I think it's the ministry of the apostles as they preached the word of Jesus and spread the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. How did these Ephesian believers come to know Jesus? How did they come to participate in this peace that Christ made? Well, they heard the teaching of primarily the apostles and the people that the apostles were discipling, and that's the way that the word spread. How did you and I come to know the peace of God? Wasn't it primarily through the teaching of the Bible? Through the message that the apostles recorded for us that salvation comes by faith in God, by the grace of God alone? So I think when he talks about this ministry or this preaching of peace, that's what I think it's referring to. And we can disagree on that, but I think that makes sense. This was foretold in Isaiah 52. If you remember... Uh, Verse 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness and publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. If you read through Ephesians, you remember from chapter 6, he's talking about the armor of God that we put on, right? And he says this in 6.15, And as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Peace is the message of the gospel. Peace with God primarily. We saw that last week. There has to be a, we would call it a vertical reconciliation between us and God before there can be reconciliation in a true sense on this level. And I think the same is true with peace. We first need to be reconciled to God and out of that reconciliation comes the peace that Christ brings, the peace that he gives. And this is the same message now to both Jew and Gentiles. This is why I was saying last week that I think the world's way of looking at things is backwards. Because there's a lot of people right now who with good intentions want to make peace. We just just don't want any more trouble. We just want there to be smooth sailing. We want it to be peaceful. But... They ignore the fact that reconciliation has to happen first. Otherwise, it's just kind of a surface level agreement to get along. It's not true peace. We have to get this order right, which is why as Christians, as those who say, I follow Christ, I put myself in submission to his word, his authority, our lives need to be marked by a desire for both reconciliation and peace. It doesn't do any good to be reconciled and still just be going at it all the time. 
The gospel is a message not only of reconciliation, that we can be brought together, but once that happens, then what? Paul says it's a message of peace. Reconciliation and peace. All of this through Christ. Right? Verse 13, we've been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Let's look at verse 18 next. We're just going to kind of walk through this morning and, and see this. I think that's the most helpful way to do it today. Verse 18, for through him, who's that? Jesus, right? Through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is another way for Paul to say that there is no longer a distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. For the same spirit that regenerated one has regenerated the other. The same God that reconciled one has reconciled the other. Okay, This is another way for Paul to say we both have been reconciled, we both have peace, and now we both have access to God. Access. This is one of the most significant things as I was studying this week that I was thinking about. Do you realize the significance of the statement that you this morning have access to God? Have you ever in your life felt far away from God? Like, I just, I don't know what he's up to. I don't know what he's doing. I don't even know how to talk to him. Because of the blood of Jesus, we have access to come into his presence. No longer are Jew or Gentile kept at arm's length. I mean, even with the Jewish system, remember last week we talked about the temple and kind of how that was laid out and how there was one place where the Jewish people could go and then the high priest could go a little farther. They didn't have direct access. They had more access than the Gentiles did. But it wasn't unlimited. It wasn't any time they wanted. They had to go through the prescribed ways and the preordained system of access to God. No longer. Is that necessary because of what Jesus did? I don't think I feel the appropriate amount of wonder at this because we've never been in a situation where we don't have that. We've been taught now, right? We've been taught, and, and praise God for that. I'm not saying we should desire to go back and be a part of the sacrificial system. I'm so thankful that we live when we do and we have the Bible that we do and we have the teaching that we do that through the scriptures. It's, it's amazing, but I know in a room this size with those of us, there are people here who grew up with a father who maybe was absent, who maybe got irritated at you when you came and asked him for something. Or maybe you had a good dad, but he just didn't have the time. He worked all the time, whatever. I mean, every human father fails to some level. But did you know that our Heavenly Father never does? Ever. Ever. You're never going to approach God and he's going to say, hang on, give me 15 minutes. I just, I've been really busy with this other thing going on and I just, I can't, give me, I need a moment. He's never going to say that. You're never going to desire to come in and sit and talk with him and have his ear and he says, I'm, I just, I'm too busy. Or you really screwed up yesterday. I saw what you did. Get out of here. Go take care of that and come back. That's not our God. We have access to God through Christ. God can be a father for us even no matter what your earthly father is or was like. God is a perfect father and we have access to him because of what Jesus did. That's what Hebrews 4 
talks about this a little bit. Hebrews 4, verse 14, speaking of Jesus, the author says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect was tempted as we were, yet without sin. Let us, therefore, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and help in time of need. We have access. Total, unrestricted, unlimited access. That was huge. That's huge. Let's keep moving. Verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You remember from verse 12 last week, we talked about the fact that those who were separated from Christ, and Paul's talking about the Gentiles, they didn't have access. They didn't participate in the covenants of promise. They were separated from God. So what happened that they are no longer strangers and aliens? In the text, what happened? Well, verse 13, we've been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Now, what do you think of when I say alien? Based on your age and possibly maturity level, you probably have a number of different things going through your mind right now when I say alien. But the Bible uses this word, also translated sojourner, um, same, same word in the Greek, alien, sojourner, stranger. What it's referring to is someone who doesn't belong. Someone who doesn't have like this permanent residence, a place where they go back to every night kind of a thing. This is used, I think, negatively and positively in the Bible. Uh, if you remember from 1 Peter chapter 4, he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens, as sojourners, abstain from the fleshly passions that wage war against your soul. He's saying, because you don't belong here, because you don't have a citizenship here, don't act like that. Okay, so that's kind of how the word alien is used in the Bible. In other words... When Paul tells us that we are no longer strangers and aliens, what he's saying is that formerly you didn't have an address. You didn't have a permanent place to be. But now we are what he says to be members of the household of God. Spiritually speaking, we went from not even having access to the presence of God to not only now do we have access, we, we can come near, but more than that, we are brought into the house of the king to live with him. There's this sense of permanence to this, isn't there? When you read this and you see strangers, aliens, then contrast that language with family, household. There's something we're meant to get here in this imagery. Notice what happens when we are brought near. We are brought near not to live out our days alone and in isolation from one another. We are brought near to be fellow citizens. Paul uses the word citizens. With the saints and members, plural, of the household of God. There's several ways of talking about the church in the New Testament. We see language of a body. We see a household. We see a... Um, 
temple. We see all these things that talk about this. But all of them refer to the fact that we are saved into a corporate body. Okay, Local churches like Grace Bible Church are an expression of what we call the universal church, which is made up of every believer from every time. And when God, through his word, says that we are brought into his household, we need to understand that Christianity is not just a collection of a bunch of individuals. It is that, right? Our faith is individual. We don't get saved corporately or you don't become a Christian because you attend the right church or are a member at a church or whatever. Our faith is our own. We know that from the Bible. But you were not saved to live out your days as a Christian in isolation. We're brought near. This is what happens. We're brought into the household of God, the community, the family. By calling us members of God's household, Paul is saying that formerly we were lost and alone and hopeless, but now in Christ we belong. Which again is something that we all want. I don't care how kind of calloused and hardened you are. Everybody wants that. Everybody wants to feel like there's a place where you belong. You don't have to wander through life. Last week I talked about our identity being that of being in Christ. Remember that? Not, not letting other things define who you are because clearly, spiritually speaking, we're not defined by our external things anymore. But now we belong to the household of God. So what is this household that we belong to? I already gave my answer away. But I think that this household, and, and specifically in Ephesians, is referring to the church. It's represented in the church. And of course, local churches like ours. It's the household of God. Paul says also in verse 19 that we are fellow citizens with the saints. Now if you're coming from a Roman Catholic background, you might have a different idea of what saint means. This word is used in the New Testament over 60 times and every time it is used, it is referring to Christians. There is not a single time in the New Testament where the Bible uses the word saint in reference to a higher echelon of Christians who have passed away and who are now kind of overseeing what's going on or act as intermediaries that we can pray to. Never in the Bible do we read that. What we read is that saints are Christians. You, if you belong to Christ, are a saint. I belong to Christ. I am a saint. That's who we are. That's how the Bible refers to us. So don't get tripped up on the terminology, Paul is simply saying by, uh, what verse are we in, 19? So then you are no longer strangers, strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with believers, with Christians. Okay, that's how we should read that in verse 19. So I don't think he's referring to some kind of extra biblical understanding of what saints are. I just wanted to clear that up as we move through that. So Paul now in verse 20 says, The household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Keeping with this structure theme, remember Paul was saying we're built into a structure, a dwelling place. He now continues with some of this kind of uh, building language. We read about the household of God, the church is built finds its foundation on the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. And I think we can think about this in a couple different ways. First, 
the foundation of the prophets. As we read the narrative of the Bible, and we start all the way back at the beginning, <coughs> excuse me, we see that not only were the prophets bringing messages of um, repentance, messages of condemnation, saying from God, you messed up and here's the consequence of your behavior. That was happening, but also they were, I believe, laying a foundation. They were pointing forward to something. If you were here just before Christmas, I preached a sermon on the anticipation that the Old Testament shows us for the coming of the Messiah. So when Paul says that the church is built on the foundation of the prophets, I think in part we can see that as they laid a foundation, they prophesied ahead and said, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, and we can look back at that now and see that that was foundational. Their ministry was foundational. So that when Jesus came on the scene, many people could recognize him, and we know not many did. But they could have if they were paying attention because that foundation had been laid. I think secondly, we can see the foundation of the apostles. I kind of referred to this earlier with their teaching. But as we read the New Testament now, we see that the apostolic gospel, meaning the message that the apostles preached, that's what I mean when I say apostolic gospel, is truly the foundation of the church. We see this really clearly in the book of Acts. Towards the end of Acts, Acts 2, 42, And they, that would be the church, the saints, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. They devoted themselves. That was the foundational way. How was the early church to come to find out what God required of them? How were they to come to find out what God expected, what he had laid out, his blessings that he's pouring out on his church? How did they come to know that? It was through the ministry of the apostles, primarily. And then as the gospel grows, as it goes out, uh, Paul establishes Timothy and Titus. And they plant churches. And they establish elders. And then those people start preaching the gospel. And that's how Grace Bible Church started. Did you guys know that 2,000 years ago, this church started? It's kind of weird to think about it that way, I know. But the foundation that our church is built on being that of the apostolic gospel, and here's a quick summary of what I mean when I say that. Jesus Christ is the only way to God, and we have access to God through the work of him, his life, his death, his resurrection, and now because of faith in him, we have sin forgiven, we have righteousness given, and we can live a life in hope that we will spend the rest of eternity with him. That's the foundation Grace Bible Church is built on. And it is the same foundation that was being preached 2,000 years ago. That's the foundation, the teaching of the apostles. So the church is built or finds its foundation on the teaching, the ministry, the example and testimonies of the prophets and the apostles. Now, What ensures, what guarantees that the structure, remember Paul's using this building structure terminology, what ensures that this structure is going to be straight, that it's going to stand, and that it's going to last? Paul says it, because Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. I said that like it should answer the question. (laughs) But here's what it does. 
Some of you, I'm sure, have done masonry work, or you've at least seen it done, right? Brick lane, block, that kind of a thing. When I was building houses several years ago, I used to watch the guys doing the basements. And the foundation would be laid, and then on top of the foundation, they always start in the corner. And they build the corner up. And if that corner is square and straight, the rest of the structure will be square and straight, provided that they keep in line with that initial corner. And watching them now, I look back and realize that is ancient technology. <laughs> that was not some new, you know, 20th century discovery. Hey, if we get the corner right, the whole thing's going to be good. This was being talked about a long time before then. So when Paul says that Jesus himself is the cornerstone, I think what he means is that Christ sets the limit, the boundary, and the trajectory for the church. You get what I'm saying? If, if Jesus is this corner, the corner of the stone, the corner of the structure, and everything comes out of that, he then is the one who sets the direction of the church because we align ourselves with this. We align ourselves with where Christ is. There's no need to introduce zany tactics. There's no need for me to come up here in a cowboy hat and a flashing tie to grab your attention. Why? Because we follow the leader. You learned this in kindergarten, didn't you? Christ is the cornerstone. He is the one who sets this. He sets these boundaries. He is our authority. You remember from chapter 1, verse 22, God has placed Jesus as head of the church, meaning that all of us, all of us Christians, come into submission underneath that authority and we align ourselves structurally with Jesus. And when we do that, the foundation stands. And the building stands. And it lasts. And this is not meant to rip on churches who do things differently. I'm not after that. But in this day, I just, I'm so convinced that we need a call back to the centrality of the Bible. How do you know what Christ desires from his church if you don't know what the Bible says? You don't. And if you don't, then you start doing all kinds of weird stuff. Believe me, I am weird enough without doing weird things in the pulpit. You don't want that. You really don't. And I am so convinced and convicted in my heart and persuaded that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the center of everything. Everything. And I want you to hold me accountable if you see me strain from that, if you see the blocks start to get a little bit off and a little bit off and a little bit off, you've got to call me to that. Because our foundation is Christ. And the ministry of the apostles and the prophets and the gospels. Trends come and go. Fads rise and fall. Case in point, None of us are wearing what we wore in 1988. Right? Stuff comes and goes. We know that. It's the same in the church. There's always some new thing or some new trend or some, oh, you got to get this or do this or invite this person or whatever. And it just, 
is keep it to the gospel. Christ is the cornerstone, and we build upon him. Now let's look at these last two verses. I've got to get clipping. Verses 21 and 22. In whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Verse 21 says that Christ, in Christ, the whole structure, again referring, I think, to the household of God, this collection of believers, is being built or grows into a holy temple. Notice what he says, though. He says, it grows, he doesn't say it has grown. And you say, oh, good grief, you're talking about grammar. Well, it's important. This is a present active tense verb, meaning that this growing is still happening. It's not that the church grows to a certain size and we say, okay, great, we can be done with evangelism. I don't have to share my faith. I don't have to talk about the gospel. No, 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 no. The gospel is still moving. It is still growing. It is still gathering people into this structure, this household of God. And our responsibility is to realize we have the privilege of being representatives of God. And so as this continues to grow, we need to be bold in our faith. Now we know that because of Jesus and his perfect sacrifice, we no longer need the temple, right? It says we're growing into a temple. See that language in there? We've got to figure out what he's talking about. We don't need the sacrificial system. The book of Hebrews makes this really clear with the superiority of Jesus' sacrifice. So I think, when I think about the temple, there was two main purposes. This is just Jacob talking. The first thing was to have a place for sacrifice, Right As we look back through the history of the Bible, they needed to take their sacrifice somewhere because there was only certain people who were allowed to make the sacrifices. They were at the temple. The temple became a place to make sacrifice, to offer atonement for sin, for things you had done or something you had touched or whatever. You, you know all this, right? And then the second thing was the temple was the representative place for the presence of God. The temple was known as the place God dwelt. This is really stunning. Now, when we start to put the pieces together and realize that if the temple was the place that God dwelt and we are being built into this temple, there's some things I think that we need to point out. I'm reading, um, <clears throat> just got done with Exodus. And in the middle of the 30s of Exodus, there is this section where God sets apart one craftsman to make the things that go inside the tabernacle, the holiest place. He sets one guy from the tribe of Judah, which I'm sure is coincidental because Jesus was from Judah, that's another pot of coffee. But anyways, he gets this craftsman, and the craftsman can have one helper. And he makes the Ark of the Covenant... He makes the table for the showbread to go on, and he makes the lampstand. And I did a little bit of math this week, and I figured out that by today's value of gold per ounce, for those three things, that guy used $57.6 million worth of gold for three things. Now, if you read Exodus, you will see some of the most intricate detail of things 
and measurements and designs all about the things that go in the presence of God. So when we come to Ephesians and you and I see that we as Christians are being built into the dwelling place of God, what does that mean for us? I'm not going to apply this specifically. I just want you to think about that. I'm not going to tell you you should do this and this and this and here's what you think about this. This is what I want you to do this week. If the intricacy and the value and the preciousness of what happened in the old system was so great that even only one or two people could be a part of it. And the, the value and the way that it showed God's glory and his magnificence. And now we are being built into this temple, this dwelling place for God. What does that mean for you? What does that mean for things that you need to get rid of? Are you cluttered up? What does it mean for things you need to add? And that's what you have to figure out. I'm not going to tell you because it'll be different for each of us. But look at this. Look at the stunning language. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. God that brought 30 below this morning. God, who in a few months is going to have a 120 degree temperature difference. Figure that out this morning too. That God, through his spirit, dwells in his people. So what do you need to do to prepare? That's just something you have to answer. I'm not, I can't tell you. Ask that question. Go back and read in the 30s in Exodus. Compare that then to Ephesians 2 and say, okay, what do I need to do? That's my challenge for this morning. Let's pray together as we come to the table. Lord, what an honor and a privilege to be one of your children. What a hope that we have through the gospel and through the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, as each one of us now reflect on what it means to be the dwelling place of God, I pray that we would consider things in our lives that need refining edges that need to be softened and knocked off maybe there's things that are missing Lord that we need to add in whatever the case may be you have the power to enable us Lord to do these things I thank you for your word I thank you for the book of Ephesians for the clarity with which the apostle Paul wrote and has been preserved for us, Father. Help us to take these things to heart, to put them into practice in ways that be helpful for us and that will ultimately show that we love you and you are worthy and glorious and beautiful. It's my desire for my own heart, Lord. Would you make it so? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.